0: Welcome to Appearance Matters the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia, and today we have our second keynote address from our recent conference, Appearance Matters 7, this time by Dr Eric Stice. In this abridged version of Eric's keynote, we're going to find out more about developing and disseminating evidence-based body image interventions. Eric is introduced by Dr Emma Halliwell, an expert in sociocultural influences on body image concerns from CAR.
1: Eric currently works as a Senior Research Scientist at Oregon Institute and before this he was based at the University of Texas in Austin. His research focuses on identifying risk factors that predict the onset of eating disorders, obesity, substance abuse and depression and on designing and disseminating prevention and treatment interventions for these public health problems. Eric has conducted numerous prospective studies in this area. He's conducted meta-analyses of risk factors, he's conducted prevention trials and treatment trials that we'll hear about today. His work is incredibly impressive, and Eric has been recognised for his contributions to the field through many awards from organisations such as the APA, the Society for Prevention Research, and the National Eating Disorders Association in the US. For me, when I think about Eric's work, there were three things that immediately come to mind. The first, of course, is the body project, which Eric will be talking about today. I came across this intervention just when I was looking to shift my research from exploring the causes of body dissatisfaction to intervention. And Philippa Dierdrichs and I have been working with this intervention in the UK for the last seven years. So I've seen the programme in action, and I've heard feedback from participants who've benefited from this intervention. The second thing I think about is the experimental study that he conducted in 2001. This is still the only longitudinal experimental study of media exposure, so it's extremely valuable, and I think about it for that reason. But there's also a lovely footnote in this paper which explains this experiment was somewhat incidental in conception. The raffle for magazine subscriptions and gift certificates to the book and music store was initially intended simply to serve as a participant incentive. However, it occurred to us that the raffle was equivalent to random assignment. We therefore coded who received the subscription so that we could detect any long-term adverse effects over the study period. At the time I first read this paper, I was feeling pretty happy with my own experimental studies that looked just at the immediate impact of media exposure. To discover that, incidentally, Eric and his team had conducted what is still the only longitudinal experiment was amazing and just a little bit frustrating. (laughs) Of course, what this really taught me was to be aware of and to capitalise on research opportunities whenever they arise. And I think this gives us some insight into Eric's inventiveness as a researcher, which is also demonstrated by the third thing that I think of, that Eric was the first person to conduct an experimental study on fat talk another very elegantly designed piece of research that moves the field forward considerably. If you read Eric's work, it's clear that numbers, analysis, and effect sizes are very important to him. So I feel that I should tell you, as of Monday, his work has been cited 32,340 times, and Eric has an H index on Google Scholar of 91. We're really pleased that Eric accepted our invitation to speak today, so please join me in welcoming Eric Stice
2: to AM7. Uh, That was great. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share the work that we've done with you and appreciate the very generous introduction. Our research team has developed uh, several different prevention and treatment interventions, and I wanted to, I was tasked with sharing with you a process that we took to kind of develop the body project the lessons that we've learned and the different steps and the challenges uh, we've faced and had to overcome with the hope that it'll help other people who are trying to develop body acceptance interventions or other prevention programs uh, to do well. So that's the overarching goal of the talk. I'll start with a discussion of prospective studies, shift to randomized efficacy trials and talk about our experience there, Talk also about testing intervention theory which I think is uh, something that we really don't talk that much about in the field but really kind of making sure our intervention works because it affects the mediator and the target and we understand the mechanisms and process really can help us design more effective interventions and refine it. I'll also talk about effectiveness trials where we go into the real world and actually see if what we've cooked up and done at the university works in uh, ecologically valid situations. And then uh, shift into implementation work. um, It's really quite important. It's sort of the follow through of a tennis swing that if you develop something and spend decades of your life trying to do good prevention or treatment, you want it to affect people in a positive way. So implementation is very crucial for that. And again, I'll highlight what's worked well, what we've learned, what we learned didn't work well so early theories back in the day when we got interested in eating disorder research and this, uh, i was just a grad student with uh, other grad students my wife uh, included and we decided to form a research team and do something different we we selected body image and eating disorders because it seemed like it was a newly recognized problem and there was a lot of opportunities to do good science because it hadn't been worked over as much as externalizing problems or delinquency or other problems But it seemed really vital to identify risk factors that predict future onset of eating disorders, body dissatisfaction, because that's necessary for you to design effective prevention programs, and it's necessary for you to understand who you should target with your prevention programs. If you you have limited resources, doing targeted interventions with the most at-risk populations makes a lot of sense. So in addition to the lack of prospective studies out there, there's also a lack of integrated models that say how these risk factors work together. And I actually had a, a nice opportunity when I moved into this field, and I decided to basically read everything that was out there and try to figure out how the variables could work together, just sort of logically thinking through. And it was, I think, a very good exercise to really, on an a priori basis, come up with an etiologic model. And then you can start testing it and refining it uh, as you go along. So we uh, introduced the the dual pathway model, which actually has more than two pathways, so it's not a great name. But anyway, we argued that the cultural preoccupation with the thin ideal, the pressure to be thin, our internalization of these appearance goals, feed into body dissatisfaction, which promotes dieting, unhealthy weight control behaviors that can set up increased risk for binge eating and other eating-sorted activities. And also, body dissatisfaction contributes to negative affect. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing that makes negative affect occur within adolescent girls or anything, but that dynamic was there, so that there might be kind of two different pathways. And I really like the idea, you know, assuming that everybody gets to eating disorders with the same exact pathway, seems seemed kind of silly, and I like the idea of equifinality, that there's different pathways to get there, because it opens up the idea that you might develop better prevention programs by targeting multiple processes. So we initiated a series of prospective risk factor studies because I really think back in around 1990, there was, I think Patton had published a paper in 1990. It was one of the few prospective studies out there. And we just felt like we needed to develop some scales. There wasn't like a measure of thin ideal internalization and pressures for thinness and some of these other constructs. So we, we did focus groups. We tried to learn from people about these variables and began conducting prospective studies. And in a nutshell, we found that perceived pressure to be thin, thin ideal internalization, or the extent to which you're pursuing the appearance ideal promoted in the media, and elevated BMI predicted future increases in body dissatisfaction. Prospective studies also revealed that perceived pressure for thinness, thin ideal internalization, body dissatisfaction, dieting, and negative affect predicted future increases in or onset of eating disorder symptoms. And these, these findings are have nicely replicated from independent labs, so it's reassuring in that way. But because third variables can always explain relations between a baseline risk factor and future onset of pathology, um, I really think it's useful to do randomized experiments, because I think we can be really overly confident of our theories. And I think it's important to manipulate your independent variables to make sure that you're barking up the correct tree. Anyway, so we conducted a whole bunch of randomized experiments, which confirmed many of the relations that were identified in the prospective studies. And again, these uh, have replicated in independent studies. And I do think it's important to pay attention to prodromal symptoms. Like fasting is one of the eating disorder symptoms that emerges that might pull out the other eating disorder symptoms. And we haven't really, as a field, talked much about how disorders unfold in terms of symptom presentation and whether certain symptoms emerge and then drive other symptoms for a full syndrome to emerge. So I think that's a good direction. But we're still doing prospective risk factor studies. This is another accidental one that came out of a study that wasn't supposed to find this, but we're, we're trying to use brain imaging more because it, it just seems kind of cool that you can see inside people's head and manipulate things in the scanner to learn something. But we found that basically young women who showed the greatest at activation of core attention regions, like the anterior cingulate cortex, in response to seen supermodels, Showed greater future increases in bulimic symptoms, and I think this is the first prospective brain imaging study to identify a potential risk factor for eating pathology. So it's sort of an exciting opportunity. There's also, uh, you know, a lot of studies. In fact, more of the studies have uh, focused on predicting onset of any eating disorder because you actually—it's very hard to have enough power to predict onset of anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge eating disorder, et cetera. And those studies also implicate social cultural processes like pressure for thinness and thin ideal internalization. Low family support is another one that's not probably received as much attention as it should, but it seems to be a pretty crucial factor. Going back to the question of how risk factors work together, I was recently asked to write a review paper on this topic and uh, was dismayed to discover that we really don't know much about it. And it's somewhat problematic because the correlation between the risk factors makes it impossible that if you throw all the variables in the same model, they basically knock each other out of the model because of collinearity, and it results in a paper that you're not going to be able to publish horribly easily. But we tried to use mediation, and we basically did a prospective analysis for each of the pathways. So we said, did pressure to be thin at baseline predict change in body dissatisfaction over the three-year follow-up? Did negative affect at baseline predict change in disorder symptoms over the three-year follow-up? But it seemed to provide solid support for the dual pathway model. The other thing that I'm, I'm sort of a stats geek, but there's this really great tool called classification tree analysis. It's really underutilized, but it's really fascinating. But essentially, you have a dichotomous or continuous outcome variable, and then you basically give the program all of your independent variables and let the program pick which variable is the best at identifying groups of differential risk for onset of the disorder and tell you the exact cut point that's optimal for differentiating people who are gonna grow up to develop an eating disorder. And it's totally data-driven, and I'm unabashedly, I'm, I'm cool with learning from the data. But what we found was basically, among the sample, and it was about 440 kids at baseline, the baseline rate of eating disorders was 11% in the sample. Body dissatisfaction emerged as a core Best risk factor, and basically, if you're in the upper quartile body dissatisfaction, you have fourfold increase in uh, onset of eating disorders. It's 24% versus 6% if you're in the lower three quarters of the distribution. And then, interestingly, if you have elevated body dissatisfaction, it then goes through and says, on this arm of the the, the tree. What's the best predictor? So, among those with really high body dissatisfaction, depressive symptoms emerge as the next most potent predictor, signifying an interaction that basically depression or negative affect interacts and amplifies the risk conveyed by body dissatisfaction. So, that's valuable. And 43% of the people with elevated body dissatisfaction and depressive symptoms show onset of eating disorder. So, if you really want to go after the highest risk population, that would be a good place to start. And then, parenthetically, if you're in the body satisfied side, um, dieting emerges as the next most potent predictor and identified another kind of pathway to eating disorders that involve dieting in the absence of body dissatisfaction. So I think it's a good analytic technique. I encourage other people to use it because otherwise we're not gonna learn that much about how risk factors interact. So anyway, the implications of the risk factor findings seem to be very clearly communicating that reducing thin ideal internalization, body dissatisfaction, unhealthy dieting, negative affect are all the great targets that you should try to turn down for prevention programs. Selective prevention programs should target women with these characteristics. If you have limited resources and only can work with a subgroup of the population, work with the at-risk ones. And interestingly, we're working on a paper right now where we predicted each individual eating disorder, so anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, purging disorder, and the only variable that predicted onset of all four eating disorders Was psychosocial impairment, like not getting along well with your peers, your family, at school, et cetera. And that might be a good target that I I don't think anybody's doing that for prevention to try to improve psychosocial functioning or interpersonal processes, but it seems like a fruitful direction. All right, so with regard to lessons learned from this work. A uh, getting schools to permit you to analyze and study their kids is hard. I got told no more times than I got told yes when I approached principals. One of the things that that seemed to work well with us is to identify an internal champion, somebody like a counselor who works in a school and get them excited about the idea of understanding risk factors or doing prevention programs and then have them go bug the administration. That seemed to work well. Good retention is a challenge in prospective studies. Uh, We learned that paying people for their time to do research is valuable. Branding the study, kind of making up a name that's catchy, and then giving them swag. Is that a term that you guys use over here? I, I just learned recently from one of my research assistants what that stands for. But it's you know basically like giving them t-shirts that say the body project or something like that. It really kind of makes them feel like they're part of something important. And then collecting contact information. We ask everybody in every one of our studies for the names and contact information of three people who will always know where they are for the rest of their lives. And, Believe it or not, there are some people who even lose touch of them, but that at least allows you to stay in touch with them, check in with them every six months over the follow-up period, and it it makes a huge difference. If you have 95% retention in your study over time, it's really vital, especially if you're studying disorders that are fairly rare. You could lose all of your cases if you have 10% attrition. We also found focus groups were very useful, that uh, a lot of times, in science at least in psychology we sort of uh, focus more on empirical research but having qualitative input is really vital and we learned uh, an awful lot from focus groups in the early stages of this research and i think that's important as well and then finally uh, collinearity really complicates interpretation of risk factor research and rather than just sort of saying No variables matter because they all knock each other out of the predictive models when they're entered simultaneously. Take the time to try to use mediational models or classification tree analyses to sort out interactions between variables. Okay, so that was phase one. Two, I wanted to talk about efficacy trials prevention programs because uh, at the end of the day I was mostly interested in doing etiologic research so that we could do good and prevent eating disorders. So I'll describe uh, basically a program of research that uh, we, we went through, and I'm a little bit sort of a rabbit experimentalist, and I thought it was important to take each variable in the dual pathway model and manipulate it to make sure that it's actually causally related to eating pathology. We're definitely right, it seems, with thin ideal internalization and body dissatisfaction. Turning those down really reduces eating pathology. Negative affect has been much more hit and miss, but I'll showcase the work that we did on the body project and the healthy weight prevention programs. So in the dissonance based body projects we basically provide young women an opportunity to say why it's a bad idea to try to look like a supermodel and they talk themselves out of it and I have to admit that basically that was the same content that is in a lot of other programs so it's not like a new idea but usually the other programs would lecture at the kids and say it's a bad idea to try to pursue an unrealistic appearance ideal rather than having the kids talk themselves out of it and Cognitive dissonance is a really cool, very fundamental thing. We have a very base desire to maintain consistency between what we do and what we think. So we can use that for therapeutic benefit and have people do things that make them think in a healthier way, and that's what the the Body Project does. So it's also known as the Reflections Program, Free Being Me, the Succeed Body Image Program in different countries, but they're all dissonance-based interventions that really um, have the same core exercises of just you know, doing role plays and writing letters about why it's a uh, good idea not to pursue the thin ideal. So it reduces thin ideal internalization, and that theoretically reduces the other variables in the model, including body dissatisfaction, unhealthy dieting, negative affect, and eating pathology. There's four things that you, that you need to do to kind of maximize dissonance induction. Doing it on a voluntary basis, uh, having no external justification for your arguments, having high public accountability, and putting in a lot of effort. All of those things maximize dissonance induction so you know in the intervention uh, the young girls discuss the cost of pursuing the thin ideal, write letters to younger girls about avoiding body image concerns, argue facilitators out of dieting or pursuing the thin ideal, and engage in behaviors that they avoid because of body image concerns. So it's really just it's a very simple intervention that just goes after one construct but does so with a whole bunch of different activities that were varied to hopefully improve engagement so the healthy weight intervention which is sort of in the other corner and to be honest with you this is supposed to be a placebo control group so it wasn't supposed to work we basically reasoned that we would have young women you know that signed up for body acceptance class and say well one way to improve your body satisfaction is to basically make gradual improvements to your dietary intake and your activity levels so you balance intake with output which is not rocket science and certainly not novel but it was participant driven and it was very gradual changes so it's lifestyle focused not go on a diet so you look good in a bikini at spring break, but like eat healthy for the rest of your life. And in the first two trials that we used it, and we thought it was a placebo uh, intervention, it produced some effects. And it was like, oh, this is kind of curious. Maybe we should get behind it and push instead of making trying to make it less effective. Maybe we should try to make it more effective. So we we've tried that. You know, the idea is that if you improve body dissatisfaction by kind of eating a healthier diet and exercising more, that's great. So, anyway, that's the other program. The early pilot trials basically suggested that the body project produced nice reductions in risk factors and symptoms, which encouraged us to kind of go in and get a larger trial funded. In 2006 and 2008, we published the first large efficacy trial in which we randomly assigned people to the body project, the healthy weight intervention, an expressive writing intervention where they basically write about some emotionally important experience that they'd had, a real placebo control condition, um, and the assessment-only control condition. So we saw nice reductions. we saw greater reductions in eating disorder symptoms for the body project relative to all three alternative interventions. And I really think it's critical to outperform credible alternative interventions because otherwise all of your effects could just be demand characteristics inherent to trials. As a second focus, uh, it was encouraging that some of the effects persisted out to one year follow-up. We got nice reductions in body dissatisfaction, again with the body project outproducing expressive writing, which is a a credible alternative intervention, but not the healthy weight. Healthy weight actually did a fairly good job at reducing body dissatisfaction, too, but not as good as the body project. And the effects seem to persist out to six-month, one-year, and two- and three-year follow-up. So it's encouraging that this three-hour intervention is producing effects that seem to persist out to three-year follow-up. I think most exciting for me, this is definitely the greatest results I had, and I, I actually laugh about this because we were talking about serendipity earlier. My statistician was like, Eric, don't you want to see if you reduce the onset of eating disorders? And it's like, oh, I don't think we'll have enough power. And he's like, I will just take a day to, to code, and it's like, all right, go ahead. It took him one afternoon, he basically got a beautiful 60% reduction in eating disorder onset over three year follow-up for both the body project and for a healthy weight. So that's, and that's the holy grail. That's the whole idea is that you go into a high school and help people not develop an eating disorder. So we were very excited about that. Uh, We got a 50% reduction in obesity onset for the healthy weight intervention versus a control condition. This too is, um, it's it's laudable. It's been really hard to prevent obesity onset. And I actually don't think any real obesity prevention programs have, have done this well. Anyway, uh, numerous uh, efficacy trials conducted by a whole bunch of independent teams have replicated the effects of the body project. This has included um, Carolyn Becker's work, Hollywell, and Dietrich's, um, as well as a bunch of other people in America that we've followed over the years. So that's encouraging. So far, we know it's produced positive effects for young girls, middle school girls, high school girls, and young adults. In some of our studies, there's people as old as 40s, really old people. Anyway, the healthy weight, we also, um, I did want to say you know, there's been very little interest or in uh, implementing a healthy weight prevention program. I think in part because everybody thinks dieting causes eating disorders, so if you try to get people to eat a healthier diet, you might uh, harm them. But in a second efficacy trial, we found that the healthy weight intervention produced very close to a 60% reduction in eating sore onset over two-year follow-up. And we found good unhealthy weight gain prevention effects. I think the, the results from the Healthy Weight Trial are pretty critical because they reveal that promoting reductions in unhealthy food intake and increases in activity prevents rather than contributes to eating disorder onset. And for me, I think it's as unpopular as I think I am for saying maybe dieting isn't the root cause of eating disorders. I think dieting comes in lots of forms and promoting positive lifestyle change, I don't think is going to cause anorexia nervosa, but it's you know certainly important to do that. And I will also admit that... We did some brain imaging work and basically found that for every additional hour you've gone since you've last had food, the reward value of food goes up and it goes up much more steeply for unhealthy foods than healthy foods. So clearly, you know, skipping meals, fasting, bad idea. Lifestyle changes seem like a good idea. But anyway, that's a a sidebar. So in terms of lessons from the efficacy trials, we basically feel like rigorous trials are more compelling than non-rigorous trials. And you know if you think about it, science is persuasion. You're trying to persuade people that, hey, try this prevention program or treatment intervention. And the more rigorous the data, uh, the more use of objective outcomes, et cetera, the more compelled people will be by your findings. Large sample size is pretty critical. Um, When I think of other eating disorder prevention programs not having been shown to reduce eating disorder onset, I actually think a lot of that problem is that they didn't design the studies to be fully powered to actually detect that effect. So it's quite possible that a lot of the other prevention programs that are out there do work very well, they just haven't been tested in big, fully powered studies with long-term follow-up they also large studies permit nice dose response analyses to make sure that yeah if you come to all four sessions as opposed to half of the sessions you show a better outcome that's a a critical thing for kind of establishing a causal relation between an intervention and an outcome alternative interventions are useful for ruling out the effects of demand characteristics and i think you know as as a field we'll have much better credibility if we use placebo control conditions if we if we try to use objective outcomes and i think that's really important And having high standards for efficacy. Uh, We've done several interventions that we've developed that have produced significant effects that we don't think are big enough to get excited about. And I think it's scientifically responsible to say, yeah, it sort of worked, the proof of concept was there, but the effects were too small to really get excited about implementing that broadly. Other lessons, uh, getting school buy-in is really essential for these trials, and it, it really requires a much more compelling sales pitch because you're coming back, I mean, you're spending lots of time in your high schools and your colleges, and you have gotta <laughs> cultivate friendships and really make it uh, beneficial. We send gifts to the office, the front office every year when we do studies and do things like that just to, to stay connected, but it, it makes a huge difference when you have good cooperation with the schools. Scripted interventions we think are useful for promoting standard implementation, if you do an intervention and everybody's getting slightly different versions of the intervention, you're not going to find very good effects. We think it's important to try various recruitment strategies to learn which is most effective. We've been sort of surprised that the, the best way to recruit an ethically diverse sample is to have recruitment posters that only show minority individuals and no white people. I wouldn't have guessed that to begin with, but, you know, you just learn that through trial and error. And then again, branding studies um, is a really good way to kind of help with retention, and I, I still chuckle because I see all these people walking around Eugene, Oregon, with all these shirts from different studies we've done over the years. The next third chapter here is talking about testing intervention theories. And this is the uh, NIH in the United States is really pushing this target engagement, this idea that you prove that you're able to affect the, the mediator that accounts for your intervention so that you know that you have that, rather than just focusing on getting reductions in the outcome. So I think it's really important to test your intervention theory, and you'll learn a lot. I mean, we learned how to make the interventions better by doing this. And we uh, started by testing mediation, and we wanted to provide a more rigorous test of mediation and actually test the idea that your mediator changes before your outcome. So we basically came up with a way of doing that, which other people have been able to replicate the mediational support that change and thin ideal internalization mediates the effects of the body project. But basically, the body project reduces the outcomes, so body dissatisfaction, eating pathology. It reduces the mediator, thin ideal internalization, Change in the mediator correlates with change in the outcomes, and critically, change in the mediator typically occurs before change in the outcomes if you do this sort of geeky mathematical thing that's possible and detailed in this uh, 2007 paper. Lastly, the intervention effects become significantly weaker when you control for change in the mediators. We increase public accountability by putting a video camera in the room, this is an old social psychology experimental trick that you put a video camera in the room, often without a a videotape in it it's just there to kind of look like it's on that helps public accountability but we do other things like encourage the kids to post their anti thin ideal letters on the internet um, sign have them sign and collect all the home exercises do away with the confidentiality statement you know usually you'd say everything that's said in this group should say in this group we got rid of it because we want accountability and then we made all the exercises much more difficult because ironically that should produce bigger effects I would have thought they would make people not do the homework, but uh, it turns out it theoretically should produce more dissonance. Um, but we found that participants in a high dissonance intervention showed greater reductions in eating disorder symptoms than those in the low dissonance intervention. Although freely admitted, um, th- the findings from this study definitely suggested that the intervention content, which is similar across those two interventions, drove a lot of the variance. So it definitely contributes to the effects. It's not just dissonance induction. But it's a pretty rigorous control condition if you're beating out a low dissonance version with the same content. So that was kind of encouraging. Third, we tested, this, I, I really got excited about this idea, but we really wanted to say, does a prevention program disrupt the etiologic processes that are operating in the lives of the adolescents in our studies? So we basically use classification tree analyses to see if condition in a randomized trial enters the prediction equation to explain who shows onset of eating disorders, and what we found was in this particular study, uh, the variable, which is a mouthful, that denial of the cost of pursuing the thin ideal was the best risk factor for predicting eating disorder onset, basically identifying kids that are um, about a fourfold increased risk for eating disorder onset if you're in the upper 10% of that variable. So again, this is classification tree analysis, the data spoke, that was the, the... Biggest predictor, but the program then selected condition and intervention condition being in the body project eliminated that risk. Like if you go through the body project and you're in that denial of, of cost of pursuing a ideal category, nobody had an eating sore onset, which is really encouraging. Healthy weight and expressive riding had about half as much onset, and in the control condition, half of those kids showed onset of an eating sore. So it really just expresses how much an intervention can really kind of disrupt the etiologic processes. Again, this is a three-hour intervention in this study, so it's really exciting. And you learned a little bit about other pathways to eating pathology here. We learned that emotional eating is another pathway, and externalizing problems, which I'm still not entirely sure how to interpret that, but maybe that's impulsivity, I'm not entirely sure. But those are other potentially good targets for prevention programs if you want to improve the overall yield of prevention efforts. All right. So testing the intervention theory. We also wanted to see if exposure to thin images produced effects. Well, we, we had done, as you heard in the introduction, experimental work showing that exposure to thin models makes people feel bad about their appearance and uh, produces negative affect. And Emma and Philippa had done this beautiful study back in 2014 where they had people go through the body project or the control condition and then in an independent study, expose them to thin models to see if completing the body project, eliminates the negative effects of exposure to thin models, and they found beautiful facts. It just lined up perfectly. So this is one of my favorite studies. The other thing that we thought would be useful is to use fMRI to detect the effects of the body project. Uh, We basically found that we did an fMRI scan before and after completing the body project or uh, for controls who didn't go through the body project and expose them to basically images of two thin models, two average weight people, women, um, or one thin model and one average weight person, and we had them say, who looks more attractive? And basically, what we found was, after going through the body project, there was less recruitment of a key reward region when you see a supermodel, which is actually kind of weird. I wouldn't have guessed that, as a teenage girl, when you see a supermodel, your reward circuitry lights up, but you, know, you don't know until you look. Um, the caudate is, is one of the, the classic uh, areas of the striatum, which is a key reward circuitry, and doing the body project reduces activation. After going through the body project, there's actually greater caudate activation when you're exposed to average-looking people as opposed to thin people. So that's kind of cool. You know, the results seem to provide evidence that the body project alters neuroresponsivity to thin images that contribute to body image concerns and eating pathology. And it's kind of cool because these, you know, the kids, after going through the program, theoretically, as they walk around London, they're going to be less negatively affected by, uh, you know, images on billboards and buses, et cetera. Um, and the objective biological support is unique to the Body Project. And I, again, I think it's a good idea to use objective outcomes and, and take the trouble. And learning brain imaging took forever, and it's a very big challenge, but it seems kind of rewarding and a worthwhile thing to do. So, in terms of lessons from the intervention theory testing, Studies that test aspects of the intervention theory seem critical for guiding improvements of the prevention program. Through doing this work, we came up with a new enhanced dissonance version of the body project that seems to be producing bigger effects. I really think that program refinement should be an ongoing process. You know, it's, it seems really wrong when you invent something and say, okay, it's perfect. I'm done. I don't want to change it. And trying to emulate, if something has worked fairly well, it's, it seems like a really good investment to try to make it work even better. And providing evidence that prevention program affects biological outcomes seems really important for kind of promoting implementation. For some reason, this sort of makes people think, oh, it's, it's a real thing, it's not just talk therapy, which is sort of silly, but you know, if we're trying to get people to invest money into implementing programs, you want to have good science that says it really does work, so it's worth it. Okay, so we next shifted into testing whether the intervention works in the real world. The question is, does the body project produce effects when secondary school nurses or counselors recruit students and deliver the intervention? And we randomized adolescent girls with body image concerns to either the body project or an educational brochure control condition. And we went to every high school in Eugene, Oregon. It's not a very big metropolis, but all, all seven of them signed on. So it's kind of nice to really go into a community and, and offer this intervention. And what we found is nice effects for eating disorder symptom reductions, Persisted out to three year follow up. So, the average effect size is definitely smaller in the effectiveness trial. And I think what we learned was that working with the best clinician in high schools isn't always great. And what we found was that a lot of these counselors had never actually done counseling in a mental health sense, they do more academic advising. You have to be sort of selective, you know, trying to get people with group therapy experience and people who have some expertise in eating disorders. Makes a big difference. But anyway, the the effects were slightly smaller under ecologically valid conditions. We did not see a reduction in eating disorder onset in this study, but it turns out people in Oregon are at much lower risk for onset of eating disorders than people in Texas or California, and it's about hiding under clothes in cold, wet climates, which is kind of curious. I mean, you don't, it's not something that's well publicized, but we definitely found out that it's good to still collect data in Texas. So anyway, but the, but this experience suggested that we should improve the selection, training, and supervision of school clinicians. So we conducted an effectiveness trial in eight different universities in the US, in Philadelphia, Austin, Texas, and Eugene, Oregon. And college counselors were responsible for recruitment and delivery of the program. And we randomized to uh, the new enhanced dissonance body project or educational brochure condition and really improved the selection, training, and supervision. For example, Because we were videotaping the sessions, we can now go through and really carefully rate fidelity and competence and provide feedback based on the standard approach. And it really helped us uh, help the facilitators do a better job. It was an eye-opening experience. And again, we're, we're learning things about when you go to implement how to train people to do this effectively is really critical. So we confirmed that the body project produces effects under ecologically valid conditions when clinicians deliver the prevention program in colleges. Nice eating disorder prevention effects, uh, reductions uh, out the three-year follow-up again. So far, we've always got effects out the three-year follow-up if we look that long. And we got effects for body dissatisfaction. Just in terms of comparing the effects across studies, which I think is really useful. It's a benchmarking, benchmarking approach. In the efficacy trial, we had an average D of 0.59, which is a medium effect size. It was a little bit lower in the high school effectiveness trial. And then when we did the effectiveness trial in colleges, it went up. And I think that was due to the improved recruitment supervision of the facilitators, but also the enhanced dissonance intervention. Um, So in terms of lessons learned from the effectiveness trials, revealed that selection and training of facilitators is really critically important. It was not apparent from efficacy trials in which your favorite grad student does all the intervention. And that's also it's it also really underscores that there's an unfair comparison between efficacy trials and effectiveness trials that in effectiveness trials, the people may just run two or three groups. They won't run 50 groups. So they may never produce the same beautiful effects that you get with a really expertly trained or, you know, somebody who's highly experienced. We also refine the intervention script and we've always solicited input from the facilitators about how to improve the script and we are always open to good ideas. I think that's actually why it has high acceptability and works pretty well. And we also solicit input from the participants about what they like and didn't like and were willing to kind of abandon things that seem like the, the, the kids didn't like to do. We also learned that it can be difficult to locate clinicians with the experience to competently implement the body project in a lot of secondary schools. Universities were a little bit better off, but with the economic downturn, the recession that hit in 2008, um, a lot of the counseling centers were were cutting staff and it was becoming more difficult to find clinicians. So it prompted us to test whether we could task shift implementation to peer leaders or deliver over the Internet and if if it would work as well. Uh, so w- our work with peer leaders was prompted by Carolyn Becker's pioneering implementation research with peer leaders with college sororities. That was born out of necessity that so many people wanted to do the body project that she couldn't run all the groups herself, so she had to train other people and luckily did that and found a really good way of training the sororities members to implement the program to themselves, which uh, it's a really great solution. I like the people who are affected by a problem being part of the solution. It seems like a really elegant thing. <laughs> And we compared the efficacy of peer-led versus clinician-led groups versus educational brochure control condition and we got good effects again we found that the professional counselors did a little bit better than the peers but the peers did pretty well and we compared the e-body project to the group body project an educational video control condition or an educational brochure control condition in this randomized trial and we paid somebody to make pretty light and all that but anyway in this first trial We had the internet intervention produce positive effects. It looked like it was fairly similar to the group-based intervention in terms of effects, and there's also body dissatisfaction effects. It was interesting that the educational video was sort of therapeutic. It wasn't a significant effect, but it's a D, a 0.25, so just showing people a free video is very therapeutic, and we probably should do all prevention programs with that base minimum control condition, because it seems kind of not right to do assessment-only control conditions. The eBody project produced greater reductions in symptoms and risk factors, uh, persisted through two-year follow-up with some of the effects, and it, strangely enough, actually reduced unhealthy weight gain in this uh, over two-year follow-up in the study, too. The eBody project, it's um, six modules. that take about 40 minutes each to complete. So the next thing we did, though, is we we sort of shifted into implementation trials. We really wanted to see what's the most effective way to kind of deliver this content, internet, clinician-led groups, peer-led groups, and we currently have results through six-month follow-up. The good news is clinician-led and peer-led groups all produced reductions in virtually all of the outcomes, and they persisted through six-month follow-up, which is very encouraging. The eBody project did fairly well. It, It did better than a lot of programs have done out there, but didn't produce as many effects, and the effects were smaller on average, and this was kind of For me, the most exciting thing is that the clinician-led and the peer-led groups both significantly outperformed the internet-based intervention. And again, this is another alternative intervention. So even though it's our alternative intervention, I was happy to see that we can beat out an internet intervention. And then lastly, there was no significant differences between clinician-led and peer-led groups, which is encouraging. But the other really cool finding, I think it was close to a 75% reduction in eating disorder onset for peer-led body project groups compared to the internet. So that's really encouraging. I don't think a prevention program has reduced eating disorder onset relative to another credible alternative intervention yet. The effects against the assessment or the educational video were in the right direction, almost significant, but not quite there. So that was encouraging. But the peers were looking really good. There's also, in terms of other implementation work, there's been several uh, projects that have implemented dissonance-based interventions. Carolyn Becker has replicated the effects of the body projects um, with members of a particular sorority, which expanded uh, at a national level. Basically, the sorority uh, heard that the program was was well received by their members and paid a lot of money to implement it in about 112 schools around the United States, which was kind of cool. That's called the Reflections Program. And it really, the content is quite similar to the body project. Uh, It's tailored for sorority members. So that was encouraging and carolyn had really pioneered this train the trainer model where you can basically train people to train other people to deliver the body project and it sounds like a mouthful but it's a really good idea because i have to go around and train every clinician to deliver deliver the body project it's not going to be very widely implemented so the eating recovery foundation center which is based in um, colorado in the united states is now funding a train the trainer uh, body project dissemination effort that basically we're going to a hundred different universities in the U.S. and training undergraduates to deliver the body project to other undergraduates but in a self-perpetuating motion so they train successive generations of facilitators so that's pretty exciting and NEDA National Eating Sort Association is implementing the body project in high schools in New York State um, with amazing acceptability it's, it's sort of interesting because when you do randomized trials your poor subjects have to complete all these interviews and surveys and do all this other stuff. When you just implement a program, they like it a lot better. They show up and everybody benefits. So the the kids have liked it so much that they actually requested that we use a six session version of the body project, which we had written up but never used. They love it. And then they actually asked for booster sessions so that they can get together as a group again, support each other on a monthly basis for the rest of the academic year after they do the body project. So it's really kind of exciting that people like it so much are asking for more. Probably you've heard a lot about the Dove implementation through the World Association of Girl Guys and Girl Scouts. They're implementing Free Bean Me found like 125 countries, 3.5 million girls. But it's been really fantastic and they've targeted girls age 7 to 14. The implementation research has basically found positive effects in a whole bunch of different countries. It's produced reductions in thin ideal internalization, body dissatisfaction, negative affect social adjustments, avoidance of life behaviors because of body image concerns, um, and improved self-esteem. The lessons from the implementation research, use of a community participatory approach seems really vital. Like working with an organization to come up with a solution to a problem that affects them has proven really, really vital. Carolyn Becker really led the way of doing that with uh, the sorority program. We tried to emulate that as well in our work with Dove, and it's very valuable. Identifying the core features and aspects that can be adapted is really critical because people always like to adapt things. They don't want to just sort of use it right out of the box. Um, So trying to figure out what is essential that shouldn't be changed and then what are the surface things that can be changed is really critical. Uh, We also learned that a scripted intervention manual, which everybody seems to love to hate, is not a bad idea. I sort of think about it as training wheels. So when you pick up the intervention manual and you can read the nice gray boxes and just sort of deliver an intervention, without any fear of public speaking or anything like that. It allows you to learn how to do it, and then you can sort of put it in your own words and and not read again. So scripted intervention manuals, I think, are useful and have their place. In terms of what promotes broad implementation of the body project, which, if you're interested in developing prevention programs for body image issues or other things, seems important, independent replication is really critical. It functionally expanded the investigative team and made it so that there's a whole bunch of people studying this uh, intervention, and it improved the intervention. And having really rigorous trials is, I think, really important and test of the intervention theory. It's also important to do effectiveness trials. It seems totally unglamorous to say, does it work in the real world, but it's an important step. And taking uh, input from facilitators and participants as we've done this uh, journey over the last 15 years has been really vital in terms of improving acceptability Always striving to improve the effects is very important. Publishing facilitator's guides and creating an, a facilitator support webpage. The, there's a facilitator support webpage for the body project that has all the scripts you can download for free and uh, videos of people implementing it so you can see what it looks like. And then making the intervention script freely available on the internet, I think is really important. I mean, it'd be nice to be rich, but I think it's better to, to implement things and kind of give things away. So I think all those things were helpful for broad implementation. Thank you very much for your attention. For
1: a fascinating talk. We have time for questions.
2: Thanks for a great talk, Eric.
1: I have a quick question. Right at the beginning of your talk, you talked about how you almost had to encourage uh, the people to come up with the ideas themselves. You wouldn't tell them to do this. You'd encourage them to, you know, what do you think about, you know, the facilitator has a body image thing. How do you talk them out of it? Um, and that seemed to be really effective. Um, and then you have your train-the-trainer approaches. Do you find the same effect there, that those who are training the trainers actually have a, a, an improved um, outcomes as a result of, of teaching someone else almost.
2: Yeah, uh, Carolyn Becker did a paper on that very topic and basically showed that the more times you implement the body project, the better you do in terms of body satisfaction and reduced uh, pursuit of the thin ideal. And this this was college sorority members that are probably slightly higher in uh, pursuit of the thin ideal than the average person, but it was very encouraging. So it's therapeutic to be implementing it.
1: Fantastic talk. Thanks, Harry. I was, wanted to pick up an issue on, about the healthy weight intervention and then I was also thinking about the fact that you have some people now asking for more sessions. And uh, it seemed like the two interventions were both effective but had s- some slightly different ways of working and different outcomes. And so I'm wondering if you've thought about putting the two, offering the, both of them, and whether that might uh, hit some other targets.
2: Yeah, that's, it's a great idea. And uh, we've so far, we've actually done three different studies. Um, but the long and short of it is no. They don't work together. And I think it's because they're fundamentally incompatible. Because in, in the body project, you're saying, feel good about what you're, how you look right now. Don't worry about the appearance ideal. Don't pursue that. And then in the healthy way, it is, well, eat better and exercise more. And they just don't seem to go together. And I, I think that uh, Catherine Pestnell did the best study. I think it might have been with Carolyn Becker, and they basically found worse effects when you add the two together. And we've tried to like do one after the other, and the attendance is horrible for the healthy weight after you do the body project because they're like, well, this is kind of stupid. I don't want to... Anyway, um, so it's... I, I think... Um, and I, one of the things that's really guided a lot of my work, and I'm not sure if it's easy to see, but I'm uh, sort of a simple thinker, and the body project just tried to turn down Pursuit of the Thin Idea and healthy way is just trying to kind of help people balance input and output. And we've done negative affect interventions and cognitive behavioral body acceptance interventions. But we really wanted to just move one variable at a time so we could have uh, the ability to see if it's a causal risk factor. So for better or worse, it makes for sound bite interventions that are very simple. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I'll run into kids that have been in trials and they'll be, oh, what, what, what condition were you in? And they'll remember what the message of the body project was i mean three or four years after the intervention and i think in part it's because it's simple but yeah it was a good idea susan
1: thanks so much i think that your work has obvious implications beyond just the variables that you're presenting here when you're presenting interventions at a critical time of identity development and thinking about how this impacts feminist identity for example i think is really valuable thing to evaluate and i'm wondering in addition to that social construct how much Uh, you're looking towards policy or systems change relating to this amazing work that you've done?
2: We have had, I think, a very narrow view and we haven't looked at a lot of the variables that we could have measured. So I don't know if we've changed objectification. I don't know if we've changed feminist orientation, et cetera. So it's an interesting question, but in talking with Emma, she was saying that in some of the high schools that she's working at, that they get up to 40% of the kids in the school signing up. And I get so excited about actually, affecting the culture of the school because I don't know if you guys remember when you were teenagers or have them now it can be a really hard environment and a lot of cruel things are said and it just gets so exciting to think about kind of really changing the cultural fabric where people may really change how they interact with each other outside of the groups that are going on so I think there's all sorts of really interesting opportunities I'm really interested about the idea about policy because I think Bryn Austin's uh, talk really got me thinking that you know, I do. I wear an obesity prevention hat and an eating disorder prevention hat, and they talk a lot about policy in eating disorders or in obesity. But I, really, there's been a lot less work in terms of what should we be agitating for, you know, in terms of policy changes that would, you know, improve body satisfaction and no, no airbrushing or no models. is certainly that's about all I've heard. But I think that's it's just really exciting to begin to think about what can we do to kind of change uh, the culture that our kids are growing up in so that they feel better about their bodies.
0: A big thanks to Dr. Eric Stice for giving us permission to share his informative and insightful keynote address. To hear more from Eric on body image interventions on this podcast, have a listen to episode 6. Next time on Appearance Matters, the podcast, we'll be sharing our third and final 2016 Appearance Matters 7 conference keynote address by Carl's Professor Diana Harcourt on visible difference in low-income countries. Well, that's it for today, and thanks to our Appearance Matters conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England, and the Dove Self-Esteem Project, and thanks to David Intercal for our theme music.